recording. So, sir, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come out here and talk with me on my little podcast. And this is Don Fouts. Go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to the listeners and tell okay. them a little about yourself, sir. All right. For those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Don Fouts. Uh, I was station captain out at 92s for about 13 years. Uh, spent almost 25 years uh, with the Greenwood Fire Department. Um, started in 85. Um, started coming around. I didn't actually come on the department until 86. And I actually started just because I like drinking with the guys. Be honest with you, I'm, I'm not going to lie about it. You know, there were some beer drinking guys back in the day. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, surprising. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, and there were a couple guys that had a, had apartments over on Lowe's Boulevard uh, mm-hmm. over next to Don's Guns. So, uh, you know, they'd have keggers out there probably every other weekend, you know. Um, and I thought, you know, these guys are pretty cool. And then John started, John Wheat, uh, John who Wheat, was yeah. uh, assistant chief car two for, uh, for several years. Um, he talked me into, you know, going ahead and taking that step and putting an application in, which, uh, you know, at the time I said, yeah, sure, you know. No, no big deal. I maybe put a little time in. And um, so then we, you know, I got the application. And back in the day, it was, you didn't, you couldn't piss anybody off. If, if you made somebody mad, um, you were going to get blackballed. Really? Because it was all voted on. Mm. Um, you know, we'd have a, a Sunday, or a Sunday meeting? Yes, uh, thir- Thursday training, Sunday meetings. But we'd have Sunday meetings, and uh, that's how you got on the department back then is you got voted. There's, uh, there was a guy that tried. Uh, he On his third try, he finally got on. Really? He was just, you know, he was kind of annoying. Um, you know, so, you know, you had to be a good dude, I guess. I don't know. Um, but we uh, once you got started, I, I never thought I would get as involved as I did. And I tried to think back, you know, everybody talks about when they were a child. You know, they always want to be a fireman since they were a child. Well, I didn't remember that. And then the more I started thinking back, my grandfather uh, lived in Hazard, Kentucky. And he was a police chief there for 25 years, city, which is a city judge. Um, and uh, the court was over top of the firehouse. And they had a sleeping room up there. Of course, they had a pole. And I used to always want to go over and slide down a pole. And there was a fellow named Wendell that was there every time I was there. And Wendell would always take me around and walk me around, show me things on the fire truck and tell me what they did and everything. And I guess I was paying attention, <laughs> but didn't realize. It. And what year do you think that was? Oh, that was back in the late 60s. Okay. Yeah, late 60s. We moved up here in 67 um, when I was six or I was five years old. And how old do you think Wendell was? I'd say guess. Wendell was probably, you know, late 30s, early 40s, okay. you know. So he's got some pretty, probably good experiences in the fire service. Oh, at yeah. That point. Yeah, down, down cool. a little place like that. Uh, and, and the firehouse is actually built into the side of a mountain. What? I'll, uh, I'll pull it up later and show you the pictures. Yeah. I, I got some pictures of it. It's pretty cool. And, cool. Uh, but, you know, of course, in a small town like Hazard, everybody knows everybody, you know. Um, so, you know, they would, everybody was very nice to me, you know, and showed me around and, and I, I think it really got instilled in me, but it just kind of went to the back of my head when I got involved in athletics, um, you know, through my teens and early twenties, everything was, you know, all about athletics. Um, you know, went to Greenwood high school, 
uh, actually all my schooling was in Greenwood. I think I still hold the record for uh, rebounds for seventh grade. Really? I, I believe I'm still top. Were you still the same height as you are now? Pretty close. <laughs> Pretty close? Yeah. And how tall are you now? Uh, well, I'm now six foot. I was six, six two at one time, but they've cut so much out of my back and my yeah. neck. That you start to lose <laughs> some of that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I went, like I said, went to Greenwood High School. And, and then after high school, um, was looking at uh, opportunities to further my education, but really more of a party. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up going to University of Kentucky. Um, walked onto the football team and uh, practiced a lot. Um, I got that, that'll be for another podcast. We'll talk about that. <laughs> but um, blew my back out in spring training, and when I did, came up here. Unfortunately, at the time, um, it wasn't as as prevalent as it is now, you know, with people having, you know, small disc surgeries and coming right back and playing in six months. The doctor I had told me if I wanted to walk again, I need to quit football. They didn't have specialists, you know, other than that. This was just a neurologist. Yeah. So, you know, that, that kind of cut my, uh, that cut into a few things um, early in my career, you know, uh, before ADA came out, you know, you uh, you couldn't go someplace if you had pre-existing injuries, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, nowadays, it's a lot it's a lot easier to to get through because they realize that there there's more productivity out of this person just because of this one small problem. We can still get a lot more out of him. So I, I at least I think that's yeah. way it, they've done today with back surgeries. Now, I was out for three months. I had back surgery a few years back, mm-hmm. and I was out for three months and then back at work. And I didn't imagine I'd be back at work until six, nine months. But I was just back to normal. Wasn't able to lift as hard as I could up until now, a few years later, to where I'm back to deadlifting, I'm back to squatting. But I'm not doing incredible, incredible amounts. But I'm making sure I'm working on form and stuff like that. But it's pretty incredible, the technology. And, like, for your scar on your back, how large was your scar? The the first one was probably about six inches. Yeah. And then the uh, I've had three on my lower back. Okay. Uh, the third one uh, was basically our, our uh, microscopic. Yes, and that's what mine was. My, yeah. Mine was the microscopic, and I've got my scar is probably a couple in, an inch and a half, mm-hmm. almost two inches. Yeah, and my you know L four through L five, L six, I think L four, L five. Yeah, mine. Um, and and of course, you know, mine was back in nineteen eighty three, eighty two, eighty three. Excuse me. So I, you know, at this time I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, you know, with the surgeries after I came out of college and stuff. And, um, my father had been in the transportation industry. Uh, that's, that's why, how he came up here is he started at roadway uh, trucking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he had some contacts and, you know, said, okay, well, why don't you go see this guy and talk to this guy? So I talked to, I, I talked to a couple places, um, had actually got hired one place, and they didn't tell me they had hired me. Um, to, to make a long story short, I ended up going to a company called Overland Transportation. Um, they were the, they were around for about eleven years more while I was there. Union came in, you know, uh, there were some problems. We were already union, mm-hmm. um, but there were some issues with the ownership and stuff. So they basically had to shut the doors. Uh, 
So I went over to a place called Holland, and this was in 1993, 94, excuse me. They they were looking for casual help working out on the dock, and I told her, I said, look, I'll do whatever you got right now. I got a family to support. So I started doing that, and... um, Got a phone call from uh, another company and said, hey, we'd like for you to come in for a second interview. And I went in and talked to the terminal manager. Her name was Vicki McCrary, a little redhead, probably about four foot two. <laughs> Had a fiery temper, though. And she, uh, she said, oh, you don't want to work for them. You want to work for me. I said, well, yeah, I kind of do, but I got you know, to get insurance. And she goes, well, let me make a phone call. She called, paged me back. I come back to the office. She goes, they're going to call you tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock uh, with a phone interview for a supervisor's position. I said, okay. So, you know, this company, I spent 27 years at the company. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've got a loyalty. You know, I, I got a lot of loyalty to me. And, you know, there were opportunities I could have left uh, during that time. Um, but like I said, the company was very good to me. When I was sick, you know, I, I took all, uh, almost a year off and was paid full salary. Wow. the whole time because of my disability insurance. Yeah. But getting back to whenever I got started, so the guy calls me. Uh, his name is Daryl Lokers. Uh, been with the company forever. Um, he's, you know, asking me different things and everything. Well, back then, we didn't have cell phones. We had pagers. <laughs> and I get a page from my son's school. Said that, uh, basically, you know, please call. And he was sick at school, so I told him, I, I told Daryl, I said, Daryl, I've, I've got to take this call. I said, I, I don't want this to ruin my chance for an opportunity. I said, but my son's school paged me. He said, no, absolutely, call him and call me back. So I called him, and, you know, we, we made arrangements. I got a hold of my wife, and she was able to go pick him up. I called Daryl Lokers back, and uh, I said, I, once again, I want to apologize. He said, the interview's over. I said, Okay. He goes, anybody that would take the opportunity to take care of their family over the possibility of getting hired someplace is somebody we want working at this company. He goes, this is a family business, and that's what we're about. So, you know, that, that's how I got into my 27-year career at Holland. And then going back to a little bit more of my career, um, when Y River Township went to um, hire full-time battalion chiefs, that was my one opportunity because they had a waiver um, as far as for pre-existing illnesses and, or, or I mean for the, age, for the age process. They had a waiver for the one-time hiring. So I had applied for uh, one of the jobs over there. I got all the way to the uh, uh, psychological interview, was getting ready to get that set up. I went in and talked to my little four-foot-two redhead boss and told her what I was doing. And she said, okay. Two days later, I go into the office, and she says, well, what's it going to take to get you to stay here? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, they told me well, whatever you said to do it. They didn't want to lose you. I said, okay. Um, give me 200 more a week. She goes, you got it. I'm sitting there thinking, why well, didn't I ask for five? <laughs> but long story short, that's uh, – that basic, she goes, look, I know you wanted, you know, this is something you always wanted to do. You know, you wanted to get in the fire service. You're already in the fire service. She goes, but, you know, my boss has said keep you. I said, I understand. I said, you're right. I said, I can't keep that for my family. I can't keep that money for my family. And uh, so that was the end of my 
uh, career firefighting <laughs> before it even started. And wow. I think that was back in 95, 96, something like that. So, so back to the, uh, back to the 92s. Um, 92s, we were kind of always the misfits. We were on the other side of town, so we never saw admin. I think it's kind of still the same way. Similarish. Yeah, but probably not as, uh, as uh, oh, I don't want to say rowdy as us, but uh, questionable things. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd have deck gun fights in the bay. Um, you know, they would start out as just, yeah. you know, little, little water, you know, little water fights. They end up being deck guns. I mean, we'd be firing <laughs> deck guns across the bay. Um, we had a two, a big, I think it was about four foot tall. It was a two. And every year we put Christmas lights on it and we put it on the tower in the back, all the way up at the top. And planes, I actually had a couple buddies of mine, pilots, said they use it for a homing beacon. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, but we. That was, I was talking to him over at 92 yesterday. I told him, I said, all right, who's going to be brave enough to climb that tower mm-hmm. and put the two up there? Yeah, and Nat was man. laughing. He was cracking up. He uh, he thought that was pretty funny. Were you part of it there when they got the nickname for the house, the dog house? I'm, I'm, I'm the originator. <laughs> so I, I elaborate gave, as much as you can. Well, you know, we were... Um, the doghouse was basically where most of the guys, whenever they get arguments with their wives, that's where they'd go. That was the doghouse. Uh, we were out one night and uh, late, and I come home, and the couch is in front of the door. I have no idea. I mean, I'm past three sheets of the wind. And I push on it real hard, and it goes, it goes out of the way. I said, okay, well, I wonder how that happened. I pushed it back over where it's supposed to be. Went in, sat down, turned on the TV. And the wife, you know, at the time, whenever she would do all the laundry, she'd put my stuff in baskets so I could put it away. And then no big deal. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm starting to pass out in the chair. She walks in with a big old class, a glass of cold, cold water and throws it in my face. I looked up at her. I was pretty mad. I said, I'm leaving. I'm going to the doghouse. When 15 minutes later, Doug Kepper comes walking in with his, with his laundry, too. We had, of course, we had been out together. So, uh, and, you know, I, I was actually uh, responsible for most of the nicknames that came through. Um, you know, we had, like, Leo, Leo Sayre, um, Craig Hall, Ended up being, he was Air Force One there for a while. Was he really? Yeah, but he ended up being Craig T. Hall. <laughs> I don't know. It just sounded good, so we just started calling him Craig T. Craig, yeah. I can um, only imagine what the T stood for. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had, um, oh gosh, uh, Nat Ridge is Bug on a Hill. Um, what's the what's that one for? Nat is a bug. Oh. Ridge is a hill. It's a bug on a hill. That's a good one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were some that weren't very uh, very good either that I can't really probably say. But, yeah, you know, we 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 actually we had a lot of fun. It was more early in, in my career, it was more of a, like, almost like being at a uh, frat house. Mm-hmm. You know, we we had a pool table. I mean, a reg, regulation-sized pool table. Really? Um, we had a pop-a-shot. No, we had a dartboard. 
Um, yeah, we had, you know, had it set up. And uh, one thing was olive green paint in the bay. The bay was, I mean, and, and we had got paint from, you know, donated to us. Uh, Chief Hughes, you know, got some military mm-hmm. connections, and he got some paint in there, you know. So that's why it was painted that color. Well, one day I was walking through OS&D at work, and uh, I saw some paint in there. So I went and asked my boss, I said, what are they going to do with that paint? She goes, well, we're going have to have, have to pay for it to be disposed. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll take it off your hands. You don't even have to pay me. She goes, okay, yeah, take it. And it was red. Oh, yeah. And I, when I told him, I said, you know, we need this place painted. The guys will do the work. I've got the paint. They said, okay, go ahead and do it. They didn't ask what color it was. So we had halfway up was red, and then from up from that was white. And when the chief uh, Hughes came in and saw that, I don't think he was real pleased with it. Really? Yeah. Just, just because of the color. Yeah. You know. Which I thought it looked good, um, and it grew on him. He was fine with it afterwards, you know. But but you know, you gotta understand, Mike Hughes was very militaristic. Yes, you know, um, he still is today. Oh, I know he is, and and a super person. Yes, you know, Mike was Mike taught me a lot of stuff. I can remember, I can remember uh, responding to the scene course back in the day. People marked in route. You know, we had our own radios. We bought ourselves. That way, they would know when somebody's coming. You know, if you were going to be close, they would wait on you. And there was a car fire down at Polo Run, what we called Ghetto Run. I think now it's a, a Polo Run, uh, bring your gun or something. <laughs> but I, that's another thing. We nicknamed all the apartment complexes. But there was a car fire, and Chief Hughes was over at headquarters, and he said, I, uh, he said, has anybody else showed up? And I said, no. He goes, okay, head to the scene. I'll meet you there. So I take off, go down there, and you can't miss it. Smoke blowing up, cars next to it about ready to go up. I jump off. I pull a, a Minuteman load. We had a Minuteman load on at the time. Really? Pulled it off, dropped it, uh, went up, set the pump, start spraying some water, and here comes Chief. He comes over and starts running the pump for me. I fought the fire by myself. <laughs> you did what you did back in the day. Yes. You know, um, my very first fire was um, Battle Vista. There was a, a big, nice, big home in Battle Vista, cathedral ceilings and everything. Of course, you know, if you weren't firefighter, uh, well, what is now firefighter one and two, it was second class and mm-hmm. first class and master and all that back then. But um, if you didn't have any of that training, you were not allowed to go on fire while it was an active scene. Well, I got close enough to the house to see these guys inside doing the shit they were doing. I said, all right, I got to get in a class somewhere. So they put me in a class up at uh, uh, Wayne Township. First time I go through the maze, no problem. Go through it. Having a good time. Well, the next time I have, I have to go through the maze, I went out the night before and got pretty hammered. Didn't realize that I had a little touch of claustrophobia. And I got to this one section, and I swear it was going to close me off, and I wasn't going to be able to get out, and I could not go any further. Really? Had that happened to me the second time. Contacted a guy by the name of Bob Dine. Have you ever mm-hmm. met Bob Dine? Mm-hmm. I have. And I remembered uh, when I was a senior in high school, Bob Dine had come in, and was, he had been dabbling in uh, uh, hypnotism. 
he hypnotized one of my best friends, uh, the first black guy to ever go to Greenwood High School, by the way, Duck Laura. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. But he hypnotized him, telling him he was going to have a, a spectacular game and all this. He went out and had a, had a career game that night. Really? I thought, well, if this worked for him, maybe it'll work for me. So Bob came over for 92s. We went into the uh, watch office and uh, sat there for about, it seemed like 10 minutes, but we were there for about 40 minutes. And uh, he hypnotized me, and the next time I went out there, I was through it. Never had any problems. And I always remembered, because he had told me, he said, if you ever get to that position again, just he said, just close your eyes, take a deep breath, and picture yourself underneath a tree next to a lake, all this open area. And that's what I think about whenever I get there. I only had that happen one time on a run. And and that, it worked. So I, Bob Dine's super guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, very knowledgeable. Um, served the city of Greenwood for forever. And, uh, but it, it, was, it was interesting to me. You know, I was able to get through that, that part of it. And that basically kept me a firefighter, you know, going from that. So, you know, it, it, everybody is, um, is integral in the fire department. Uh, some people do things better than others. You know, I, was able to keep myself out of situations like getting in crawl spaces or having to go up in attics because I am so big, number one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know that claustrophobia could have taken over at any time and never really had that problem, like I said, at just one time. So, um, 80, 87, I think it was about 87. The 56, um, we turned it into a hazmat truck. Oh yeah, we had to, it was only thirty years old. <laughs> only thirty. We it was still only have thirty years old. You got to understand, our TSU unit that we had uh, was an old Stroh's truck that we went in and completely refitted, refitted really? everything. We called it Shit One Special Hazardous <laughs> Special Hazardous Hazardous Incident Team. Shit One. <laughs> hey, it was a good truck, man. I mean, it had a you know had cascade system in it. Really? Oh yeah. Cool. You had to do that back then, you know, yeah. before budgets really started, you know, yeah. coming on board. And, uh, but, you know, we, but I was driving 56 on a, it was a snowy day. I was by myself, of course. Um, there was a gas leak over in uh, the Meadows, mm-hmm. uh, Oak Meadows there. And uh, I'm going down Fry Road, coming coming down to Meadowview. Well, all of a sudden, the micro brakes lock up on that son of a bitch. I, I hope this t- language that I use is... I don't care. Okay, all right. <laughs> so I'm on Fry Road at a dead stop. Lights going, siren going. People stopped over here. People stopped back there waiting for me to go anywhere. And I'm trying to get this break to release, <laughs> and I can't get it to release. <laughs> I'm there for probably three or four minutes before I can finally get it to break to release. Well, by the time I get there, you know, it's over. You know, they said, there is no gas leak, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So you know, those were some of the things that we had to had to deal with uh, as far as uh, equipment, and then uh, the snorkel. When it came back from Tipton, it had been up at Tipton for a refurb. Came back, it was parked at ninety ones. Um, hose was still in a box, you know. Um, tools were in the box, 
And so when you guys had it refurbished, did you guys all buy all new hose and all new tools yeah, for it? Yeah, that was all it was all part of the package. Okay. Yeah. So when you guys bought trucks, if you when you guys did buy any trucks, did you buy all new hose and all new tools with it as well? And um, back in the day, we didn't. We we, yeah, we couldn't afford, we really couldn't afford that. Okay. So you know, we would take it off the rigs that we were retiring or gotcha. you know things like that. What do you think for now? If we were to buy trucks now, do you think that'd be a better option buying all new hose, all new equipment? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. You option. need yeah if if you're bringing it out, you need everything to me, and unless there is a um. How do you want to say a comfort tool that okay. you know that you might want? Which a specific tool that you yeah, need which, to have? Yeah, which which I think, whichever district you have. I think mine's the one I personally bought. I think is still on ninety one's truck. Really? It's called yeah. It's, uh, it it it's known as a Phoenix tool. I have heard of it. Yeah. Okay, uh, they they named it the Fouch tool here. Really? Yeah. Oh, because I cool. bought it and it was and then John Brinkman bought one that was uh, like a half size model of it and they called that a baby Fouch tool. <laughs> <laughs> for him <laughs> yeah but it's a it's an axe and on the back side of the axe is a sledgehammer mm-hmm. and it's a pipe pole yes you know and yeah. i have seen that yeah it, it, it was a pretty nice tool but yeah you know at times guys would go out and buy their own stuff and then put them on rigs mm-hmm. you know that's that's how we got it's things. similar to the tnt tool i think you're what you're talking about the phoenix tool yeah it's very similar to the tnt tool yes yeah. i used i carried when i first got here it's it was a heavy yeah yeah it, it, it was it heavy but I carried it. Well, I, I had a uh, I had a leather truck belt made for me. That I'd just drop it down in the ring, and it'd sit That's right nice. in the ring. Yeah. You know? That's really nice. So you were talking about the snorkel, and you guys. So, yeah. So um, so we we're, were sitting at the firehouse one night, and uh, Jeff Pine was over there. And, of course, Jeff came on before me, you know, so mm-hmm. Jeff had been around for a little while. And uh, I said, man, we need to get that truck over here. He goes, well, let's go get it. About midnight, 1 o'clock. Okay, we went over. We, they, of course, Sarge was sleeping in the bunk room, and when he does, the bay door bounces from him snoring. <laughs> so you know there wasn't nobody gonna wake up. So we get all the hose, we put it up on all the tools, put them up there, radios, everything, put them on that truck, drove it back to the '92s, spent the rest of the morning putting that thing in service, putting all the equipment on it. Eight o'clock in the morning, I pick up the radio. Uh, what was that, car five? Car, I was car six. I said, car six, Greenwood, go ahead. Uh, go ahead and show truck 92 in service. Clear. About that time, phone's ringing. Chief goes, what do you mean truck 92's in service, or truck two? And, uh, and I said, well, we came over and got it about one o'clock, spent the last five hours putting it, putting it in service. Nobody was going to do anything. And from that point on, I, I, we didn't argue. He said, okay, I just want to know what was going on. <laughs> Paul Kai was chief then. Was he really? Yeah. But th- but that's how we, you know, that, that's that's how we got truck uh, truck two, truck 92. We used to we used to give snorkel rides down at the uh, 4th of July Fest. And mm-hmm. we so we basically started our own company. It was called uh, Poor, Dog, Poor Dog Amusement. And uh, yeah, and I mean, we were the we were the life of the party. There were there was always a line when they were shutting everything down. Mm-hmm. We'd have to go back to the back of the line. Said nobody nobody else. Right. And uh, I mean, people loved it. It was the stupidest thing in the world to do, but people loved it, so we did it. You know, they were taxpayers. They paid mm-hmm. for the truck. Might as well get a ride. Yeah, it? and it was I safe. Don't, I don't. I get why. I get why insurance wise they don't do it, but it, I think it's so crucial to get the 
the people in the community involved in yeah. what we do yeah. to show them like, Hey, this is, this is how this operates. Hey, if this is not operating properly, like let's take the ladder, for example, mm-hmm. in our ladder right now, if that water, if, if there's water flowing in it, there's not to be anybody in the bucket. If I was to take a few of the taxpayers and put them up in there and tell them that like, Oh yeah, we can't have people in here. If there's water flowing, I guarantee you they're going to be pissed off about it. They're going to be like, why isn't it getting fixed? Money, like we just don't have that for this truck. It's a very expensive truck. Yeah, I'm sure if you explain it to people of understanding, like these are very expensive items that we oh sure to yeah. complete our tasks. It's not the cheapest thing. You can't just go and buy an off brand of it. Like you've got you've got to get you've got to get the best for it so that way you're saving people's lives and you have firemen's lives in, at risk and, too. And that's that's very that's very true. That it's it's crucial that you know that, that they understand because people don't understand. Um, you know, why we do certain things when we come up, you know, why we're not diving into the car that the person's in, even though it's up against a pole and it's leaning against a pole, you know, why aren't you checking that person? Well, I got to make it safe for me to check that person and get them out. You know, um, if you got lines down on that car to where it's making it a hot car now. And we had, we had that incident. We had a lady. Yeah. I was, I saw you guys out there. Yeah. We had, we had an incident about that. We've had multiple where cars are hot and you can't touch it Yeah, unless you want to die. Sure. (laughs) Sure. You want to die, bud. You go ahead and touch it. You're, you're going to be the next patient. Yeah. And it's just going to halt more of the, more of the patient care that we're going to be doing because now we got to deal with you. Yeah. So, yeah. And, 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 if I if I could have changed anything uh, from my time, it would have been probably trying to educate uh, the public more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I feel like I had a big hand in training a lot of people over the years, um, services you know that I helped provide over the years. But the the education, the public education, you know, we did a great job with um, you know fire prevention week with the schools. I tell you what, that I think has been one of the largest reasons of why we don't get a whole lot of fires in Greenwood because because you guys did it for over over 20 years I know Mm -hmm. that for sure because obviously I had fire prevention when I was in elementary school and I still remember to this day them bringing the trailer in and talking to us like you know, hey, this is what's gonna it's gonna sound like when a tornado's coming. Like, and then they have all the sounds, and then the fake lightning, and then yeah. then they talk to you about fires, and they talk to you about what's not safe, and stop, drop, and roll. They talk to you about, you know, they show you, you know, light switches that when you have too much power going to a switch, it just flips, and then the, the breaker trips, and they they take they show you uh, electrical cords underneath carpets when they get too heated and catch the carpet on fire. And them explaining that, then having the little science part of it and having fire and you hear the loud booms and stuff yeah, like the, that. The, the coming down the tube. Yeah, coming yeah. down the tube and you have mm-hmm. the fuel and it ignites and it's not the fuel that it ignites, it's the gases. And and then listening to that as a kid, but them doing it for so long, you, you could see a correlation of the amount of fires that we used to have. And then as time progresses, the lesser and lesser amount that we have. Yeah. And I truly think that the fire public safety of the, the fire prevention has got a huge deal in that. Oh, sure. So yeah. for firemen, yeah, training them, getting them the knowledge is great. But if you want more fires, quit training them. <laughs> you want more fires, <laughs> stop teaching people how not to, you know, to be safe. But that's the benefit, which is why Greenwood at the, for the longest time was the place to be. Like it was the place for all of that because of what progression that they were doing. Yeah. It was fantastic. And for me, it was a huge impact on me, which is why it made me want to be a fireman. 
Sure. And obviously I, I worked for Greenwood. So yeah, like it was a huge deal for me to see and meet firefighters coming from the city that I live in. And they're teaching me about this stuff. larger than life, larger. Exactly. Yeah. And now that no, I'm, I, get it. I was doing it for other kids for mm-hmm. the longest time. I wasn't the main instructor, but I was one of the guys assisting with whatever they needed. Yeah. And, and that's what the kids needed was just to see a fireman mm-hmm. and, you know, realize that, you know, Hey, this guy cares about me. Maybe I should, you know, care care about myself. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, that's what they got. Giving out of them it. the ideas of if there is a fire at your house, where's your meeting place? Yeah, giving that to their parents because I remember kids coming back and talking because uh, Tracy Rumble did it for the longest time, and he would I would talk with him about it, and he'd say kids would come up to him and they'll be like, "Hey, I went to my parents and talked to them about a meeting place," and it's like they thought it was a great idea, like these little elementary kids telling the, like their parents yeah. about it, telling about eating, and, you know. and God forbid a house fire happens. That kid just saved his parents' life. That kid just saved his sister's life. Like mm-hmm. whoever, whatever it was, like just because of the small basic knowledge that we just bestowed upon them. Do they still use the Edith pamphlet? Oh, I have no idea. Exit drills in the home. Uh, oh yes. Okay. Yes, I don't remember all the lingo and stuff, which no, is why yeah, I record I everything because I have a horrible memory. Oh yeah, <laughs> I am pretty. I bad got at chemo it. brain, so don't worry you, about that. <laughs> got chemo brain. Yeah. Well, it's uh, you guys did the fill the boot. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, and I remember as a kid, I just told you this story before we started recording. Yeah, my mom would turn to us, and we were in the little bubble van that we had, and she'd give me and my brother, you know, some change, and be like, "Give the money to the firefighters, fill the boot." And I never knew at the time what it was for, but we'd always pull up. You guys were always at the intersections, and we'd stop. We'd say hi, firefighter, and then we'd throw money in the boot, and then we'd drive off. So you had a portion in that you ran that for six years. You said yeah, six so six or seven years. What was what was the fill the boot about? Obviously, I know it, it was uh, it was muscular dystrophy telethon uh, that Jerry Lewis had for so many years. Um, it was our way to you know to try to try to help with the you know the telethon and back in the day it was a uh, it was a real uh, a real crowd favorite if you will. Um, we would fill up every rig with maximum numbers and take them down, uh, frying 31, actually 135 and fry was our first starting spot. And we did pretty good there, but that was only two lanes, mm-hmm. North and South. You remember when it was two lanes, don't you? Mm-hmm. So, I was a little kid, you know, so we weren't able to get a whole lot there. I uh, got a lot of people going down to bean blossom, but, um, so we went to 31 fry and, uh, stuck, struck up a shell there and, you know, they'd let us park in their parking lot and stuff. Awesome. Um, we were able to raise, there was one year, I believe, and I, I think it's over at headquarters, opposed, uh, it was like $26,000 one year and just unbelievable. And, you know, the, the citizens, they loved it, most of them. Um, it, to me, it was it was a, a, a you know, public safety. It, it was being out in the public, letting the public see you. You know, um, that way, if you showed up at their house, hey, I've seen that guy before. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was very, you know, we got a lot of visibility out of it. I went up and was on TV a couple times um, to give them the money. And um, it, it was just to me, I've got a handicapped son uh, who at the time there were no um, means for him to uh, uh, like uh, receive any kind of benefits. Um like muscular dystrophy does. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if I can help out over here, it was more, more in my heart than anything. If I can help out over here, eventually somebody's going to be able to help out with my son. And, you know, he's going to benefit from that. 
you know, I would want somebody that was capable to try to help if they can. And that was just, you know, that, that's what got me started in it. And I, it, it was a passion with me there for a while. Um, the guy that was in uh, charge of it before, uh, Jim Harvey, had passed away during mm-hmm. a training incident. And it was uh, the last time we had a uh, citywide funeral before uh, the one just last week. Mm-hmm. I was part of setting that up, too. Those are always really difficult to, they to deal with, especially they if the guy's a friend. If yeah. he's a co not just a coworker, but a friend of yours too. We've we've had to do it for a few times now. We had we've had a handful of guys that have passed from the fire department in the yeah. last eight, nine years. Mm-hmm. And it's just been, it doesn't get any easier with it. It just it gets it gets weirder to me. It's just well, it's because always weird. Because there's always I wouldn't say always, but a lot of times there's questions. Yes. You know, what happened? Why did it happen? How did it happen? But you don't have the answers mm-hmm. most of the time. No, most of the time you won't. It's always been something that's just you look at you look at some like cities related to us, and you look at the the causes and what why did it what was there for us to do to change anything? And most of the time you can't change a single thing. There's, there's no. nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. Especially for suicide. There's just, it's, you could be there as much as you can. And from what we've seen, like obviously going on, re, re, responding on suicides mm-hmm. and responding on people that have been addicted to pain medications, to opiates, whatever it is, it's you, you can only help so much but that person's going to want to get that help too. And that's something that is so difficult. I'm reading a book right now and I'm not getting to the part yet about suicide, but he's mentioned it a few times and it's just, there's only so much you can do before that person has to make that choice. Yeah. They have to make that choice to want to get help. And it's the same with addiction too. Like, Oh sure. Yeah. I've had a friend that was, you know, addicted and to heroin and it, Thank God they turned their life around. But mm-hmm. for the longest time, I would sit there and try to contact them, and they wouldn't respond for a few days, and I finally get a hit back from them. And it's like, yeah, I know I need help. I just don't want it. I just want to keep doing it. I, until, I, until they want the help. Until they want that help. But yeah. until then, they And sometimes do so they don't much. make it past that. That's right. They get something laced. You know. and what have been some of the calls that you've been on that have really stuck with you, uh, good or bad, and you can go with both, that have really just stuck with you for your career, that it just well, really tugged at your heart? I'd say the one that really sticks out the most, um, there was a, it was called a, a child struck. Um, I forget exactly where it was at. It was over off Meadowview someplace. And uh, we rolled up and the medic beat us there, you know, because we were home respondents. So we had to wait for somebody to come from home. We get over there and they had already got the, uh, when we rolled up, there is, white stuff all over the all over the street it was like it was stuffing from the diaper oh okay and, you know at the time i didn't yeah. know what it was i'm trying to trying to picture what's going on there's oh, a God. vehicle over here the car had actually ran over the child but didn't hit him with a tire just and so i went to the back of the medic truck i opened it up and one of the most intense medics that i'd worked with at the time and had been working with at the time i mean this guy was good you know, he was like a machine. You know, he'd go in and drop an EJ like it was nothing. And uh, he turned and looked at me. He said, get in now. This kid is fucked. And I, I obviously, I jumped in. Yeah. And I hollered back and said, take the truck back. 
and uh, rode in with him. And we, you know, we worked the child uh, till we went up to Method, no, Riley, went to Riley. And uh, child had a um, depressed skull fracture, um, just numerous injuries, you know, and probably wasn't going to make it. Probably two or three years old. My daughter was three years old at the time. We got back from the run, and I went straight to the house. Went in the house, picked my daughter up, and just held her. I couldn't imagine what those parents were going through at the time. You know, when you have, when you can relate to an incident that close, it, it really, it, it really has an impact on you. Um, that, that's probably the the biggest one, with the exception of an incomplete nine one one call. Uh, down at Getter or Polo Run, um, we get there and uh, doors locked. And cop shows up and he wants to kick the door in. I said, "All right, go ahead." I think it was Maxfield, so it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he kicks it. He kicks it once. Doesn't get it the first time. I said, well, "You want to get that for you?" He goes, "No, get out of the way." He second kick. He gets it kicked in. He said, "Oh, let me check everything out." All of a sudden, he hollers from inside, gunshot! <laughs> Seems clear. So we take off, we go inside. There's a guy with a stoma. And just bleeding profusely from, from it. And uh, going through, you know, of course, you know, we start working the guy, you know, we're trying to, and, and, you know, he has lost so much blood, we could barely even get, get a line on him. So it wasn't, the, it wasn't a gunshot. It wasn't it was a gunshot. It was just a stoma yeah. that he had. What he happened was... was we yeah. investigated in the bathroom. You had, he had his suction out. We have a feeling what happened was he uh, he got that suction um, clogged up when he was using the, using the suction. So he went to take the stoma out. Sorry, about that's that. right. Yeah, but he went to take the stoma out so he could breathe. And when he did, it must have adhered to one of his uh, arteries. And when he did, it, it ripped that artery, and he just bled out. Oh, my gosh. You could see the 9 and the 1 on his phone were red, where he was trying to dial 911. And the guy was probably maybe 7, 8 years older than me. Yeah. And that went through. I mean, that screwed me up for about two weeks. Uh, in my head, I'm thinking, what is going, you know, what is this guy thinking? You know, is he, is he sitting there thinking, I'm dying? You know, and, and it got me to the point where I had I'd had a couple panic attacks after that. Yeah. You know, we discussed panic attacks earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> just uh, just the fact of you know, I was picturing myself in his position, which I'd never done before. I'd never put myself in a position of a victim, but I had with him. Uh, Trace Rumble's on that runway. Really? Yeah. Once you once you put yourself in that, that's something that shows a lot of empathy. And mm. for somebody to do that, I really struggle with not doing it because it just brings more emotion to it. Yeah. And there's guys out there that I'll talk with and they're so good. They're so good at displacing that. Mm. And I wish I had that. We would come back to the firehouse and, you know, sometimes have discussions and um, that were great for all of us. But if somebody came in on a discussion like that, what the hell are you talking about that for? But if you talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, that that's, you know, I, I was going to, I stopped by 94s. I was going to go out and check on uh, um, Lairway. He, you know, he, 
He pimp, I called him Pimp Daddy growing up because he had all these ladies always coming in the firehouse and everything. But uh, he also helped me when my daughter went to the Air Force. You know, tell me what to explain or what to yeah. expect. She was stationed at a place he was at, so cool. he had contacts. He's now. a great guy. He's a really good oh guy. yeah, I really yeah. like him. super guy. Yeah. I I, I kind of took him under my wing, and he was like a yeah. like a son to me. Um, you know, we still stay in touch. But he, uh, what are we talking about? We talked about panic attacks. We talked oh, about yeah, talking yeah, with yeah. guys and opening. Yeah, up. I, I mean, you know that there's a there's a lot to that. You know, you joke around about things. That's what I talk about. People would come in hearing you talking about something. You know, why are you saying that? That's how we deal with it. Mm-hmm. That's how we dealt with it back in the day, anyway. Um, you know, they. Th- I think now they're um, they're pushing more toward uh, like group therapies and things yeah. like that on incidents, which is fine. You know, it's basically what we did. It's only organized a little bit more now. It's organized and probably more structured. Structured. But I would say that I've had a few of those incidents to where I've sat and did a structured one once before and I did not enjoy it. But I've sat multiple times and had conversations and then guys crack jokes about it. And it sounds very, very insensitive. But insensitive morbid it's, even it's disgusting if another if a civilian comes in to hear it but until you start until you are there and you're in that position and you're in that role the only way for a lot of people to su- successfully get through it is to crack a joke about it yeah. and one of the jokes that i always like to say to myself that really gets me out of that empathetic zone is oh he's just sleeping <laughs> He's just taking a nap. He's just sleeping. Yeah. And then it's just like, it just kind of changes things. So like when, you know, obviously I'm just saying it to myself, like oh, he's napping. So you'll be fine. Yeah. So it just, it really takes it away from trying to sit there. Cause if I'm sitting there and I'm just very emotional the whole time, like obviously not crying, but I'm emotional about it. Mm-hmm. What am I doing possibly for that patient or the family? If I'm sitting there crying with them as yeah. well, I'm not doing much. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be beneficial to my crew. That's, if we're working a patient, I'm sitting there just crying over the patient the entire time. Am, is yeah, my head in the right spot? My head might not be in the right spot. Yeah. And there's been, I can't tell you, every, uh, almost every cardiac arrest, I always, I'm, I'm, I drive now. So I do all of the, you know, the information and stuff mm-hmm. when we're doing arrests. And every single arrest, at some point, I try to always say a prayer. Yeah. Not openly out loud because obviously I, they're working on stuff, mm-hmm. but I always say a prayer to myself for it. And whatever the outcome is, Lord, it's, it's your will. Just let us just know that we're doing that's everything we're, we're doing. I, I and, like that. I, yeah, you know, it's, it's, that's interesting. And it's something that I've done on just about, I think, every single cardiac arrest. Obviously, with the more scarier runs with kids and stuff, we've been having more kids runs lately. I'm always saying a prayer because it's like I just I, I can't handle that stress. I know I can't. I have to give it to somebody else. I have to give it to God. I know that. Yeah. And that is something that it makes it easier for me to give it to a higher power for that decision. Mm. And it's, it's not putting all that stress on me and I'm not struggling with it every single day. Cause I mean, I couldn't even imagine for the guys that just have those types of runs daily. Yeah. Those larger, you know, those larger cities, yeah, New York city. Yeah. They're going LA on that County. stuff every day. Oh yeah. Every day. Yeah. And, but you know, you were talking, um, about, uh, the, uh, um, the impact that it would have, you know, if you were there with a patient, you mm-hmm. were crying with them and stuff like that. You know, to me, that is part of our job is to mitigate the situation and try to calm them down that much more. 
um, you know, if you can afford to get, get one crew member that can go over to do yes. that. Um, the, uh, the situation, um, God, I, there was one that I was trying to think of. Um, yeah. The, um, down from my parents' house, um, got called for a, a patient that passed out or whatever. Long story short, we show up. It's the mother of a, of a guy I played basketball with in high school. He was a good friend of mine. And uh, I got a phone call from him later. You know, of course, went inside. She recognized me, and she mm-hmm. was calming, it calmed her down. So, you know, he had called me later to tell me. He said, you don't know how reassuring it was for her to see you come walking in that door. She just immediately calmed down. And I said, you know, I, I, when I have situations like that, it makes you feel good. You know, even if you weren't able to do something, if you just made them feel more comfortable. Um, she was, uh, but I remember her, uh, she had an accent cause she was from Austria and she growing up, she was, uh, you know, she was always a good mother, you know? Um, I didn't even know she was still living there when we got called there. So I was surprised when I first saw her and when I saw her, I said, Maud, she goes, Don Don. <laughs> I said, yeah. And she, she goes, oh Lord, I'm, I'm I'm having this and I'm having that. Well, those were questions that they were she were they were asking her and she couldn't give them answers. Mm-hmm. So it kind of helped out there too. It helps being from the city. It does. It it really does. You know, um, I uh, you know obviously growing up here and I had volunteers when I was here. You know, volunteers for football coaching and basketball coach. You know, there were volunteers. And that, this is another reason why I got into fire service. I was working the craziest shift at work. I was working third shift, you know, at home all day long. They needed help during the day. So, you know, it, it worked out pretty well that that I was able to uh, be around during the day and give them more coverage. And, you know, we'd go down and sleep at the, sleep at the firehouse. There was a guy named Bo, uh, God, Harold, uh, Big Harold, gosh. Anyway, guy, the guy was seen walking with two axes going into a house fire and taking a door down. That's how big the guy was. Well, he and I were a two-man truck crew um, because he worked nights downtown, and I worked nights. So, uh, And then we had uh, truck crews uh, shirts made up. It, was a, um, it had a picture of the snorkel, and then it had a fire, a little piece of fire holding his fist up at it. Yeah. All right, and then I uh, had, uh, uh, and it, it was, uh, and we call it the station crew wrecking or station two wrecking crew. The shirts, and I, I can't, I, I don't have any more of those. I don't know, I don't see any uh, that many T-shirts out anymore. Did, did people stop doing that? Yeah. So from from my experience, from what I've noticed, is there's just not as much. Um, stuff being done where guys are creating their own shirts. It can still happen. They yeah. can still do it, but it's got to be approved. It's got to be okayed through other mm-hmm. uh, avenues. Yeah. See, we, we didn't have to approve it. Yeah. You yeah. just make your own and just, you yeah. put it in service. And then for us, we have a company that we go through now, which I believe uh captain Harold that we have. And I believe Todd Brooks, correct me if I'm wrong, was were the ones that actually helped get this. Like it's a website. You can order your shirts through, through another company. Hmm. And they, it's actually really cool. They got, Baseball tees, they got, or they got the, I don't remember all the names for everything. I always get those wrong, but they've got a lot of different types of shirts you can buy on mm-hmm. there. And 
I've gotten a few things from there as well, and they're they're, pr- they're pretty cool actually. But I actually for me, I like to just get an idea and then just go do it, and then like be like, "Hey, this is something we came up with." And there's but there's avenues now that we could follow to go through yeah. with that stuff. Is there well, as much freedom as there was before? Uh, no, no, guarantee you there's, yeah, not. there's not. You, you know the two rags. You've seen the two rags. Uh. Uh-uh. Oh yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll show oh, you. Oh, the, the the it's a do rag yeah, is what it is with yeah. a Maltese cross and a two in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And it says Green Fire Department. I think uh, Gary I, Shives had one for the longest time. Yeah, I went yeah. to uh, Mirror Image is where I had it done at. Really? Yeah, I, I wanted to keep it local, and uh, cool. Mirror Image was able. She goes, "Yeah, I can do that." She goes, "If you need anything else, tell me what you need." Well, I didn't get you know I was yeah. pretty much out of the fire department at the time, so. But yeah, I had uh, I actually started those back in the ninety, early nineties, ninety one. Um, just took an old a regular handkerchief mm-hmm. and had them put on there. That's awesome. And uh, I mean, it was a big hit back then. What have been some of the? What has been? I'll, I'll switch it over to me real quick. You can grab your glove if you want. Yeah. Um, what have been some of the fires that you've been on that has just been either historic for the city of Greenwood, or things that have just really stuck with you in your career. 1996, um, we were called in the middle of the night to a uh, fire down at, I don't know what the hell they're calling it now, Cinnamon Tree, Canterbury, no, Canterbury was uh, County Line, Greenwood Trails. Okay, Greenwood Trails. Okay. Yeah. I have an idea what you're talking Right about. there at Frying 31. Yes. Well, we're called on a, um, we're, we're called on a, uh, an apartment fire, and um, in route, dispatch advises that the caller advised that she can't get into the hallway because it is full of fire and smoke. She is at home with uh, an infant, and she's getting very worried. And I said, tell her to go to the back of the apartment, to the very last room where there's a window, and wait for us. We will come and tell her to stay away from the window. We're going to take the window out, and we'll bring them out that way. Didn't grab a line going in, nothing. We went straight there. That's what we did. I, my crew got off, got up, brought the child down, brought her down. Wow. During the time I'm instructing uh, crews coming in, I'm telling uh, Engine 91, grab a, grab a plug, tell them where the fire was at. Aerial 93, I told them, I said, you guys come up, go to the rear of the building. We've got multiple, uh, multiple victims uh, on the balconies. The headlines in the paper the next day said, uh, Greenwood firefighters save 11 people from... Uh, from fire, you know, talking about, you know, we, we took 10 pe- or nine people off the balconies and these two people up here. Wow. And then I got my ass chewed because I didn't grab a plug on the way in. So I got pretty, pretty hot about it. I said, you know what? That's fine. Because we used to have bad throwing contests. When all the, whenever the officers would get pissed off at the chief or something chief had done, they don't, we'd be in a meeting and everybody throw their badges at the chief. <laughs> Those were fun times too. But, you know, I, I got on the radio and I said, Greenwood, car six. Go ahead, car six. Nah, mark me out of service forever. <laughs> and the chief immediately hits me up and asks me to come to headquarters. I said, I don't think so, sir. I said, we can meet, meet at the water and hold tonight. So we went down to Green Acres. We met, up, met down at Green Acres. And uh, he said, look, he said, what you did was not protocol. He said, but what you did was right. I said, then get this guy off my ass. I said, I, I, you know, I, I don't need that. I don't need that kind of headache. And so, long story short, I, I didn't resign at the time. But 
there was a fire actually before that. Um, we rolled up on and we were first engine in. We did grab a plug and uh, then dispatch advised there were victims around back of the apartment. So I told them, I said, go ahead and get the line to the front door. I said, I'm going to go around and check it out out back. I go around out back and there's a chick hanging out. I mean, she was a big one. She was hanging out of her window, second floor. Smoke just blowing out over her head. Wow. And one of the maintenance workers had brought a, a ladder and was going to try to bring her down. Well, I'd hit the guys up and told them, I said, give me a ladder back here now. I said, I've got a Vic I need to get. This guy had this ladder up there. I'm thinking, we ain't got time. So got, got it close to the window. And I went ahead and went on up. And got her, you know, helped her out onto the ladder and was around her. About that time, my two crew members were bringing the ladder around. I told him, I said, put that ladder next to this because we were sagging. Mm -hmm. I said, put it right next to me. They put the ladder up. I was able to get over and maneuver her over and get her down. And then she collapsed once we got down there. Got the medic truck and got her out. Just the picture that you you see somebody hanging out a window with smoke rolling over their head. It's just like, you talk about adrenaline, right? Wow, and uh, you know she she made it. You know, awesome. So um, that was probably that. Those two fires were probably the most ex, most exposure to the uh, to the patient being so close to being injured or you know being hurt. I wouldn't say patient, but the victims. Mm -hmm. I think this was in two thousand. We get called uh, Christmas morning to uh, Value City. On report of a water flow alarm. Roll up. Uh, engine I two's unseen, nothing showing. Check that. The sky is showing. Can you advise? We've got a ceiling collapse. It looks like almost entire ceiling. Water was flowing out the front because it knocked the sprinklers mm -hmm. down. So that lasted for a while. Oh my it just snow build up and yeah. you know, the roof. You, you've heard about it. You've seen it. Mm -hmm. So. Um, which actually turned out to be pretty profitable for firemen after that for a while because Value City Furniture, in order to remain open, had to pay somebody to come in for fire watch. Well, who else but firemen off duty making $20 an hour back in the 90s or right around 2000. That's pretty yeah, damn good. That is real good. Because all you had to do was sit there and read a book, maybe walk around once yeah. in a while. That's all you had to do. Wow. I used to have a fire watch job that I did. And did it was just eats. Oh, my gosh. It's such easy money. Oh, it yeah. It's such easy money. And But then again, if something does happen, obviously, you got to act or be able to call 911 to let them come in because you're watching for everything. But yeah. I was going through hazmat technician class at the time. So oh, I okay. used the I used the entire time that I'd work. I did 14, 16-hour shifts. Mm -hmm. I'd first, you know, first three hours, I'd just study and just go over stuff. I enjoyed hazmat stuff. Like, I'd. I, would I want to go out there and be stationed at 94s? No. You don't want to be a mopping globe. I don't know. I don't want to be doing that. But, like, I enjoyed it. Like, I found yeah. it would be interesting. And taking and, class and, was interesting. I, I was the same way. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be a mopping globe boy, but I knew enough, you know, to keep myself out of trouble mm -hmm. and keep other people out of trouble. But it was interesting at times. That's going to react with that. Mm -hmm. You know, so, uh, yeah. It's seeing explosions, seeing the blevy, seeing the, just all, just kind of seeing everything, how it does. Like, water is going to react this way to this chemical. Yeah. Like, you can't hit it with water. You have to do a rain down, a bank down. You have to smack it off under wall and bring it down. It's just like, there's just so much into it that a lot of guys just don't. Either they just don't realize or they forget about. It. I forget a lot of stuff too, and sure. there there could be a lot of things to where 
if if there's not that continuance of education where we're thinking like, oh, we know what all we're done, you know, with with extra trainings. Hey, this stuff's simple. We don't need to really go over it. It never happens here. Well, guess what never happens here? You know, mass shootings. What just happened here? A mass exactly. shooting. It's mm-hmm. it's things you've got to be always you've, you've prepared. You've got to be prepared. For. Over like you say, over over prepared. And I'd I, rather be over prepared than under prepared. It's oh, embarrassing absolutely. to be under prepared. Absolutely. You know, we uh, back in the nine or uh, early or was it ninety or eighty nine? I think it was eighty. Uh, no, it was eighty eight. I think was the first year we went up twice for the firefighter combat challenge up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was at Orland Park. Um, the first year, we just wanted to compete. I mean, we just wanted to be able to finish it because we had no idea what it was. I saw a guy from Rockford. He was on a truck company. This guy's about six five, six six. I mean, you could tell he, you know, he was he was juiced. And uh, but the dummy was the last thing. And I saw that dummy falling on top of people. As they're dragging it. And, you know, because they were so exhausted, yeah. they couldn't get out from underneath it. One of our guys couldn't get out from underneath it. Mm-hmm. We had to go over and help pull the dummy off of him. <laughs> this guy from Rockford picked that dummy up under one arm and jogged, <laughs> carrying this dummy down here. So, obviously, the next year we come up, and we were going to be a little more prepared. We want to be mm-hmm. kind of competitive. We weren't real competitive, but we were a little competitive. Mm-hmm. But we took my dad's uh, holiday ram or motorhome up there, up there, twenty-six foot motorhome. Nice. So we were, you know, we looked best of everybody there. You know, we had air conditioning. You know, we could go <laughs> in, cool off, and stuff like that. And then we took it down. Uh, then we took it downtown. Uh, Steve Dont said, "Why don't we go to the Mark Plaza?" Because we were trying to find out where we could park a motorhome. I felt like Clark were at Griswold, man, driving downtown in Chicago on his 26-foot holiday rammer motorhome walking around everybody. <laughs> we had a blast, though, man. We went we went down to Rush Street and just, uh, you know, fun times. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the reason why the firehouse is changed so much from the frat house to be more now of a professionalistic-type environment? It's a generational thing. It's everybody getting butthurt over stuff. Um, you can't, you know, and being offended. Well, you know what? If I'm offended about something, that's my tough lot. Is the way I, that's the way I was raised. Mm. And everybody is offended by something. At one point or another, it's how you deal with it. And too many people are, you know, carrying it that far. You know, they, they're, it's the entitlement thing, I think, or I feel. Um, but I think the biggest thing is... Everybody gets their feelings hurt. I mean, I used to put guys on a tile. If they if they did something, you know, it was kind of a joke, but yeah. but it was serious too. You know, you show a little respect. I put them on a tile and say, "You stay on the tile till I tell you to leave." I'd go walking out in the bay, come back in, they'd be on the tile. They paid their they paid their dues. Yeah. Everybody did. I had to do the tile treatment before. Did you a few times? Yeah, at yeah. Station ninety one, uh, the old. They did the, they've redone the flooring since, but before they had the tile flooring. Yeah. And yeah, see, uh, they don't have the tile. They don't have the, now yeah, they don't have it either. And Kent Stevens was the one that I would talk all the time. I talked way too much, and I know mm-hmm. I did. And I'd talk too much, and he'd tell me to find a tile and stand in it, and I'd find a tile and stand in it. I could not talk or nothing in the tile. And I stood there until they told me that I could leave. But it, it was, well, it Matt, sucked at the time. Matt Davidson and, uh, um, Doug Kepper one day, mm-hmm. we're, you know, sitting there going at it, you know, mouthing back and forth. 
And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put an end to this right now. I said, the two of you go out back behind the shed, have your conversation there. And when you're done, come back inside and it's over. Well, Doug Kepper looked at, <laughs> looked at Matt Davidson's arms and he said, I'm fine. <laughs> Turn around and walk the other way. <laughs> You know, mad mad was civil. You know how mad he is. Oh yeah. You know he'll get mad, but he'll be civil. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you can't really tell he's mad. I would never want to really piss him off. Yeah. To yeah. be honest, I mean, I had him on the podcast and we talked about his career and stuff, and he's just he's, he's seen a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. he is a that's crazy he, guy. Yeah, his time over Mogadishu. That's why that was the first person I thought about calling Sunday. Really? To see how he was doing. I forgot he was off. Mm-hmm. But you know, he was the first one that went through my head. I said, "Fuck." Military veterans are fucking mm-hmm. happy to go and see shit like this. You know, they've already been through it. You know, because Matt's, you know, he's talked to me. He's told mm-hmm. me some stories. Um, super guy, though. He's fantastic. Yeah. He is fantastic. I'd I say the officer corps that I see here, I'm very comfortable with that we've got now. Um, but like we had talked about, I, I think the motivation um, to, to get better, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you if you feel like you're at the pinnacle. You never are. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always somebody there that's going to be better than you. And, you know, that was always, you know, you, we'd go to the fair, Johnstown Fair. Oh, here comes Greenwood, boys. You know, um, and it made you feel good. It really did because you knew they were right. You knew that they were saying, yeah, there is a Greenwood, boys, and they do the shit right. It's having pride. It's yeah. having pride in your organization. Absolutely. I, I mean, I made a joke, obviously, on social media, and it didn't go over really well with certain some people, which is fine. You know, you can have your opinion on it. Right. But a lot of guys loved it. They thought it was hilarious. I called a de- I called a department junior varsity, and you I are. called I called a department junior varsity, and I called us varsity. Mm-hmm. And it's a joke, but it's a pride thing. It's like I think I think my crew is the best crew on our department. Mm-hmm. I believe that we are the best. That's how every crew should be. Absolutely. That is how every firehouse, every crew, every department, every police department, they should be, we are the best. There is nobody better, but then show it, you know, not just, not just saying it and not backing it up. It's like, what are you doing every day? Oh, we're training every day. We're learning something new every day. We're we're not walking around knowing I'm top dog. It's I want to be top dog Mm -hmm. because that guy's hungrier. The guy at the top isn't as hungry. The guy that's coming up is the hungriest guy. It reminds me of I saw Mike Tyson get beat by Buster Douglas. I was at the Smokers Lounge at ninety twos. We we had a guy that worked for us that worked for the cable company, or not in Johnson County, but so he knew how to get all the free cable and shit for us. <laughs> John Crow was his name. Um, but I was sitting out in that Smokers Lounge and I could not believe it. And you know I'm sitting there watching this fight. And I'm saying Tyson's going to get beat. He's going to get beat. And it, but what brought this up is he was comfortable. Mm-hmm. He knew he was the best. Nobody's gonna beat him. And finally, somebody came along, knocked his ass down. You know, I I was always a big fan of Mike Tyson. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I the think, guy was a pit bull. The guy was a oh beast. yeah. I, I just I just went through and watched ten of his best knockouts on mm-hmm. YouTube. Man, oh I, my gosh! I, I actually saw the guy or was in the same room with him. I didn't get a meeting, but I was mm-hmm. in the same room with him when he was up at uh, IYDC, really? and uh, he wasn't that big. Wow! 
I mean, he was smaller than yeah. me, you know, but he would, like you say, he was a pit bull. He is a pit bull. The guy, I watch his, I'll watch his fights. I listen to Joe Rogan and they'll talk about him and like in Mike's prime when he was fighting. I'm not real big into sports, but I do admire when there is a champion overall. Yeah, a gifted athlete. A very gifted athlete. Mm-hmm. And that guy watching him fight was watching somebody being attacked. Yeah. It's what it looked like. Mm-hmm. And and I boxed for only six years. So like I did a lot of sparring and I did some I did training. By no means was I anybody excellent. But watching how he fought and like me getting my ass handed to me sometimes in, in you know sparring matches and stuff, like that was an attack. Like that oh, dude yeah. went on the attack. His that was his enemy that he hated and he was going to eat his face. Yeah. Obviously. Like <laughs> like it was he is going to eat you. And that's how that's how like in my mind for our, our crews and stuff, yeah, we're all buddies, we're all friends, cross departments and stuff, we're all good with each other. But also there should be that competition of who's the best. Yeah. Who's going to be the best? Who's yeah, yeah for, for for probably 10 to 12 years, you know, I, I called this place a farm club. We were a farm team, you know, for mm-hmm. uh, IFD. I for IFD and, you know, Fishers. Yeah. You know, Todd went up to Fishers. Um, you know, so, you know, we, we had guys going everywhere until they finally got their head out of their ass here in Greenwood and said, we need some career firefighters. No shit. <laughs> Been telling you that forever. What? They're not going to listen to you? Why wouldn't they listen to you? They wouldn't listen to me because I have trouble coming across with what I actually mean sometimes because my my voice carries. Yes. <laughs> I do believe that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's it gets kind of difficult when you see things happening and you know the answers to them and you try to bring it up and you get silenced on it. That's something that obviously like you can even look at the the idiocracy with like let's talk about the COVID pandemic and then what the you know people people who were not vaccinated or people who were vaccinated, it didn't. They didn't specify on if you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. They would say, "Hey, if you want to provide a vaccination card, you don't have to wear a mask inside the building." Well, I didn't provide a vaccination card, so therefore I had to wear a mask at all times. But you know what? There was science out there that talked about whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, you still carry the virus, you still spread it, mm-hmm. and people were still getting COVID. And it was like, are we going to use our brains here? Or are we just going to be blindly and following? The whole thing about all this, it's nobody it's just has used their follow. brain. That's nobody has used their brain, and and they've used it so much as a political tool mm-hmm. that it's just un- unbelievable. It um, is it is unbelievable, but it also shows that there's the there's no dis there's no disconnect between somebody having their own formed opinion to where they can come out and talk about it and say, hey, just because other people are doing this does not mean it's the right thing to do or it's the correct thing to do. If we're going to be smart about this, every person should be wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. Every person I'm against it. I'm against forcing people to wear a mask. I think if you want to wear one, you should wear one. If you don't want to, you shouldn't have to now going into patients houses, completely different. Sure. To patients houses, put a mask on and, Keep a distance between them, especially if they have comorbidities, especially if they have cancer, if they're going through chemo treatments, especially if they're highly susceptible. But if we're around each other and we're like, hey, I'm comfortable with you not wearing a mask, that's perfectly fine. Make the decision to them. We also make the decision whether to go into a house fire or not at 2.30 in the morning. But I can't make the decision where I can take a mask off or put a mask on. I have to have that decision made for me. Yeah. That's there's another thing too. It's uh, I, I hate to no, kind of no, go on totally, a rant about it. I, I, I I'm totally yeah. with you on this because that mask was a big headache for me too. Good lord! 
it was just I, I it's just people fall into the hole. They they listen to what others tell them and especially government officials, they just think that they know better. They're normal people just like me. They're okay. they're just as dumb as I am. It's but it doesn't I make look them any back, better. I look back in the history and not just here, but the history of the world. And and I think back in the late thirties and early forties, how did Hitler get people to the point to where they thought it was a good thing to exterminate people. And it takes a know, few years to do it. You know, it takes a few years. Well, guess what? That was starting here. It was starting to happen here. People were hating. People, Pe- were people hating are, other. people are, they were, they were fear mongering. That's how you started. You start mm-hmm. fear mongering. You get the people to the think, same tactics were being used. The same, the same tactics. Yeah, were being yeah. Used. We'll put yes. okay. Let's back up the same yes. tactics. That's good. Yeah. Um, but it was all going on here, and it's still going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's well. I've got the power to do this. Well, I've got the power to do this. You know, they're all hypocritical. I grew up, or in my fire in the fire service, I came through when AIDS first came around. You know what? It scared the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. It scared the shit out of a lot of people. But I kept doing my job. I took precautions when I felt like I had to, um, which was at that point pretty much all the time. Yeah, that's when gloves really started coming around. Yeah, you know. The, so I do want to ask, why do you wear gloves all the time? Right now, it's uh, my uh, um, it's helping me with my neuropathy from, okay. from the tests and stuff. But there's other reasons. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing people, um, you know, being convicted on. Uh, uh, you know, their DNA being found someplace. Yeah. Well, I don't want to leave my DNA someplace if I can keep from it. You out there committing crimes there, don't Well, no, but I, but, but I don't want to be wrongfully committed. I mean, yeah, you know, I get had it. people in jail for 40 years getting ready to kill them, and it's oh, wait a minute, he didn't do that. I'd say technology is pretty good now. Yeah, you know, I, you know, fingerprints, stuff. Yeah. But also to protect myself, you know, I mean, if there's stuff yeah. out there, I'm not getting it on my hands. Yeah. Makes sense. And I've just gotten in the habit of wearing them. You know, like, like I said, the neuropathy is the biggest thing. Um, it's it's really starting to help with. So good, that's very good. So with your career here, who have been some of your influential role models? We can get finished up here in a minute because we've been mm-hmm. going over an hour. Um, who have been some of your most influential role models in the fire department? And then my secondary question with it is, who are some of the people that you've instructed through the fire service that you now see in leadership roles that you are just proud of? I'd say um, influential as far as um, here at the department. Um, Mike Hughes, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, we spoke about Mike. Uh, Doug Volpe. Uh, Doug Volpe was car three at the time and uh, assistant chief. Um, I'd say those two. I'd tell you another guy was uh, Al Wright. Really? Yeah. You talk about somebody that never slowed down. I mean, he he was always at a steady pace, but he he would find something that needed to be fixed. Wouldn't have to be asked to fix it. He'd see something need to be fixed. He'd go fix it. He wouldn't call maintenance or anything. He'd just fix it. Uh, and he was just always piddling around with stuff, you know, doing things. And just how to remain calm. Al was always level-headed, laid back, you know, jarhead marine. Um, but he, he, and he always had the time to explain stuff to you. So that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and I would say, uh, John Wheat, uh, who was my best friend. Mm -hmm. Um, he, uh, he showed me a lot. Um, 
I worked with his son for a while. Yeah, I knew you did. Yeah, Anthony. My, my uh, godson. Yeah. yeah, he talks about that. I love, <laughs> I love Anthony. I love also giving him as much shit as I can. Yeah. I always talk to him about, well, just because your dad worked here. And he's just like, shut up. I never bring my dad up, man. Dude, just because your dad worked here, that's how you get the job. It's only really <coughs> I, do the same, I do the same thing with Brent Rockwell. Uh, I'm like, dude, just because your dad's a battalion chief here is the only reason why you got a job. And he, you say what you said that to me because your dad's the chief. And I every, remember Brent. every once in a while, I he can gets remember into Brent it. and my mom and dad's tree <laughs> climbing in her tree because they were next door neighbors for him. Yeah. And uh, he climbing a tree. He goes, Help me, I'm tucked in the tree and I can't get out. <laughs> I, love, I love those guys to death, man. Uh, and I'm it's, seeing a lot yeah. of that too. You know, now I'm seeing, you know, legacies. Yeah. And th- that is one of the things I like to see here. You know, the, the Vin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I work with Mike Finn. For Mike Finn and Alex Finn and Alex. Um, you know the Wheats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, and, and and other people with like ties to Greenwood. Maybe not with the fire department. Uh, Grant Gilbert, mm-hmm. his brother or his dad Gary. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I grew up or went to school. Grant's there. a good friend of mine too. Is he? Yeah. yeah. I love Grant. Yeah. His, you talk about a man that can put a car together. His dad is the. Shit. That's what I've heard. Oh, dude. Yeah, he's he's always been well. John uh, John Wheat bought a fastback Mustang from him with a uh, nitrous kit in it, <laughs> and he ended up selling it to uh, Bob Glidden, who gave really? it to who gave it to his his youngest son Billy, or I don't know Rusty. Yeah, Rusty. Billy Billy was the one close to my age. I knew Billy. I played basketball with him, mm-hmm. so I you know I got to go down to the shop down there all the time. It was that's fun. awesome. That was sweet. But uh, he he bought it for Rusty. And said, now, if you get a ticket, he goes, I am taking that car back. <laughs> it was less than a week. And he took it, and he was ready to sell it. But it, it was a fast car, man. That is awesome. Yeah. So who have been some of the people that you've you've trained in um, your career? I wouldn't say that I was completely responsible mm-hmm. for their training, but um, uh, Dr. Ashby mm-hmm. from IFD. I've had her on here as well. She's uh-huh. fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she... Uh, I can remember. I can remember her coming out of high school. Really? Yeah, yeah. She used to come over. Uh, we'd we'd have uh, have a little poker games or mm-hmm. something, you know, drinking games. Um, see, the, um, I'd say uh, Stroke Race, which is uh, Bob Finley, mm-hmm. um, Leo, uh, Larry Sayer, uh, Subway. Jared. Oh, Jared Clark. Yeah, Jared Clark. He was my instructor for Firefighter 1 and 2. No shit. He was. Yep. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think who else going up to IFD. Well, I mean, a lot of the people that are here still that were here when I was here, I was responsible for some of their trainings, obviously. Um, that was always very, very um, rewarding to me. Um, was being able to take somebody that you know that had no no idea what they were going to be up against, and telling them that the rapid oxidation of a combustible material, accompanied by the, the release of energy in the form of heat and light, you tell them that what are they what are they thinking? It's a definition of fire. Yeah, and you know to get that across to people because I would always start with that. I said, if you don't know what the definition of fire is, you don't need to know any of this other stuff. And that's how we would start out. And I would go simply from putting your gear on. We would have gear timed every morning. Uh, 
Uh, that, that's how we would start out all of our trainings. Um, and anybody that, oh, the Arkans, uh, mm-hmm. the Arkans boys. Um, Adam Casey. Yeah. Yeah. A guy that just passed away uh, not too long ago uh, up at Wayne Township, uh, Potter, uh, Hank oh, Potter. yes. Yeah, he worked, he worked at 92 for a while. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I've seen a lot of guys come through. Um, the, uh, uh, gosh, what was his name? Can't remember his name. There was a guy that, that had come up from Bartersville, um, was up here for, or I know who it is. It's uh, the guy that was chief down at Franklin for a while. Heron. Um, yeah. Mike Heron. Mike Heron. We worked with Mike Heron up at 92s for a while. Really? So I, yeah, you know, I didn't train him, obviously, yeah. but, um, yeah. Those are probably the the ones that stick out the most. Um, there were there were some Meacham, mm-hmm. Jim Meacham, Jim Meacham took him in on his first training fire, seeing him collapsed on him. I put the fire out and said, "Keep going." <laughs> he still talks about it to this day. Um, there's another guy went over there, Titchener. I don't know him. Yeah, I think I th- last I heard he was at the river. I don't know if he's still over there or not. Um, just, uh, but those are probably the ones that really stick out to me. If there's going to be a message that you would say to the guys at our department or any department out there for anything for their career, what would it be? Never give up. Never give up on what you have set forth as far as uh, your goals, your dreams. Um, just because you don't think you're going to make it doesn't mean you're not. I mean, you'll have the opportunities, the harder you work and the more focused you stay in what your career is going to be. Um, you know, I, I didn't even have a college degree and I worked at a company or that I retired 27 years at, <coughs> I worked my way all the way up to be a terminal manager uh, of a facility that had 500 people. I was in charge of 500 people, uh, you know, their safety, their livelihood. Um, that was pretty, 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 uh, ex- I don't know what to say. I don't want to sit there and pat myself on the back, mm-hmm. but you know, not many people are going to be able to, without a college degree, make it that high of a level, you know? So, so stay with what you're trying to do, you know, and, and focus on what you're going to do and it's achievable. That's awesome. Sir, I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day just to come and talk with me and share some stories with me. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sorry I was kind of rambling around and going from the 80s to the 90s. And I mean, we didn't even, we didn't even get to talk about 9-11, so, you know. Yeah. That'll be um, for another episode. Yeah, we'll be able sure, to talk about sure. That. But no, anytime, man. I, I really enjoyed it. I was actually kind of nervous. So. <laughs> you did fine. I really appreciate it. Thank uh, you. I appreciate the time.